Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a possible explanation for some of those COVID viral fragments they keep finding in sewage and how some people can keep testing positive for weeks. One of the leading causes of single, single eye blindness in Australia and the latest research into it Maybe save eating until later. Glad I'm on a diet. The link between sinusitis and feeling foggy and what it might tell us about long COVID and the sex gap in life expectancy. For most of human history, men have lived longer than women. But since the mid-19th century, when advances in antisepsis in the labour ward and obstetrics in general meant that women survived pregnancy and childbirth, women have lived longer than men by an average of approximately three years in Australians. But in some countries, the gender gap has been as high as 14 years. The question is why? Baby boys have died more often than baby girls. Young men live a lot more dangerously than young women. But maybe it's more than that. Dr Ilya Kashnitsky is a demographer in the Interdisciplinary Centre on Population Dynamics at the University of Southern Denmark, has tried to find the answer to this question. Welcome to The Health Report, Ilya. Um, hello. Hi. So how did you do this study? Uh, well, for this study, we uh, took the best available uh, information on human mortality. There is uh, uh, the renowned human mortality database. So it contains information on uh, the long time series of human mortality for the countries where good statistics are available. And uh, we uh, we we just looked, uh, so in demography we have uh, this indicator life expectancy. This is a summary measure of uh, the age profile of mortality in a population. Uh, in the, well, in the first is an approximation, it gives us uh, the number of years uh, people in this population live. And what we observe is that... Me- measured uh, from birth. Yes, yes. Uh, what we observe is that uh, there is a sex gap uh, uh, in uh, life expectancy, uh, women live longer. So we explored which ages uh, contribute most to this sex gap. So we performed uh, the analysis uh, known as well, decomposition analysis in demography, uh, which basically gives us uh, the specific contribution of ages into this uh, sex gap. So let's start then at birth, because it's well recognized that Unfortunately, baby boys don't do as well as baby girls, and they tend to tend to be a higher mortality rate in babies. What contribution? I mean, first of all, does that still exist? And secondly, what contribution does that make to the life expectancy gap between men and women? Uh, yes, uh, higher infant mortality among uh, baby boys still exists, and this is this is actually one of the most uh, fundamental regularities we find in human mortality. Uh, that male mortality is always higher across the whole age span, uh, and uh, it, it's it's even even in, among the uh, infants today. Uh, but the interesting the interesting uh, finding of the paper is that uh, as as we moved uh, on along the demographic transition, as we uh, managed to eradicate almost all of the infant mortality. Uh, today, babies almost never die after birth. It happens very, very rarely uh, compared to... What so, so even if it's more common in baby boys, it's so rare, it's not making a big contribution, if much contribution at all, to the life expectancy gap. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, And and, and sorry, just before you go on, and just so I can explain to the audience, and when you say demographic transition, this is the transition between, um, you know, the 19th and early 20th century from poor countries and low-income countries to richer and richer countries uh, with different lifestyles and different causes of death, for example. Uh, Yes, well, uh, that's true. More... uh, in the first approximation, the demographic transition is the transition from the reproductive regime of uh, high fertility and high mortality to what we have now, uh, very low fertility and very low mortality. But one of the biggest steps of this transition was uh, the invention of ways to eradicate uh, infant mortality. So we, we can save almost all the live-born kids now. So let's move to young men and young women, because young men do live more dangerously than young women. And in some countries in the world, like Russia, um, they have three times the mortality of young women. What contribution, and, th- and that's a lot of years of life lost, if a young man dies of self-harm or alcohol or a car accident, um, that's a lot of years of life lost. Uh, yes, uh, but... The interesting thing is uh, that uh, what counts for the sex gap in life expectancy uh, is also uh, how how prevalent are deaths at certain age. And it's true that uh, at younger ages, the sex ratio of deaths uh, is the highest, as, as you quoted, three or sometimes even four times uh, it's higher for younger men than uh, younger women. Uh, but and this is this is the uh, everyday explanation that we sort of jump to uh, easily uh, that reckless young men are responsible for the difference in longevity between males and females and this is this is an overstatement and as our analysis showed um, the contribution of uh, males aged 15 to 40 has never been more than 10 to 15 percent or sometimes up to 25 percent but it was never the the crucial the main contribution and it used to be infants before and now it's turning to be uh, the biggest contribution of elderly men so in other words what you're saying is it's men over 60 in fact in some countries over 80 that that, that makes the big difference because there are larger numbers of them dying and is this of chronic disease is this smoking what is the cause here uh well this is one of one of the biggest limitations of our study that we cannot directly discuss uh, the reasons, the causes, because uh, uh, human mortality database doesn't have cause, causes of death. Uh, so we are only looking at the at the big picture, and we can we can discuss the reasons uh, referencing to other studies who uh, studied causes of death. So my but, my question here then is. Is this preventable? And I noticed in cloistered communities, for example, religious communities, the life expectancy gap is much narrower, and it's narrowing in many countries of the world. So the question is, could you ever get to equity, equipoise between male and female, um, the, the, could the sex gap disappear? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think biological equity is probably impossible, but we can narrow this gap quite a lot. And we see that uh, in the countries where uh, men lead relatively healthy lifestyle. This gap is uh, is much smaller than in other countries. Compare uh, Japan and Russia, for example. Uh, so I think yeah, we we can we can narrow this gap quite substantially, but uh, most likely the biological limitations won't allow us to close this gap completely. Damn it, Ilya! Thank you for joining us.
Yes, thanks a lot. Fascinating. Dr Ilya Kishnitsky is a demographer in the Interdisciplinary Centre on Population Dynamics at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense. And this is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. Chronic rhinosinusitis is an inflammation of the air spaces in the bones of the face and head, causing headaches, sinus pain and a blocked nose. But people can have problems with thinking, memory and fatigue as well. Why that might be may have now been explained by a study at the University of Washington, Seattle, where Dr. Arya Jafari is an ENT surgeon. Arya also has an interest in the nasal problems with long COVID. I treat primarily patients with sinus and nasal disorders. And in addition to the typical things that you think of, a stuffy nose, a runny nose, headaches, loss of sense of smell, a lot of patients describe to me that sort of brain fog or fatigue that was, you know, honestly out of proportion to what I would expect from the disease condition itself. And so I was able to find some people in the neurosciences department that were also interested in this. We utilized data that had already been collected and was publicly available for research purposes. And We went through about 1,200 scans of normal, healthy patients, and we identified those patients who had sinus inflammation on their MRI scans. And we created a cohort of those patients and compared them to patients who had no sinus inflammation on their CAT scan and with similar ages. And the functional brain imaging was looking at really the connectivity of the brain, how rich the connections were in the brain, because the brain works through this complex network of connections. Absolutely, yeah. A surrogate for that is to look at the blood flow. So the functional brain MRI looks at the blood flow and, and is a surrogate for brain activity. And from that, we're able to parse out the functional brain networks. And what did you find? So interestingly, we found that things that actually make a lot of sense, you know, based on what we saw in the clinic, is patients had an increase, actually, in their connectivity, a strengthening of the brain networks that are responsible for rumination, self-referential processing, mind-wandering brain networks, those were really strengthened. And the areas of the brain that were weakened, the connections were weakened, were those that require a quick stimulus change or a quick change in thought or to direct your attention to something completely different, be quick on your feet. That part of our brain that's responsible for that was shown to be weaker. And it actually was proportional to the amount of inflammation that we saw on the scan which drove home the point that this could be a biologically plausible mechanism. And was this one-to-one? I mean, it was a small study, therefore it's hard to generalise from a small study to everybody with chronic sinusitis. What proportion of the people with chronic sinusitis, with inflammation there, had that sort of network signature in their brain? We studied the group as a whole and then compared the groups as a whole because of the variability between patients. So it actually wasn't possible for us to look at individual patients to see if their brain activity, which direction it went without studying them as a group. So in other words, the generalizability is this hard until you go to another study. What you found here is what they call an association. So you've got inflammation in your sinuses mm-hmm. and you've got this pattern in the brain. Yes. The two are linked. It's not necessarily cause and effect. If it were to be cause and effect, what could be the mechanism? Reassured that the fact that there's a dose response makes us think that there may be a direct pathway between the nose and the brain. When you say dose response, people with more inflammation, they tended to be a more exaggerated pattern on the on Exactly. The Even though it's novel for the nose and the sinuses, this type of study actually isn't the first to be done for inflammation elsewhere in the body. So patients with Crohn's disease or Sjogren's disease even obstructive sleep apnea, these conditions which are thought to trigger an inflammatory response in the body have also been shown to have brain effects. 
In other studies, the effect has been thought to be through inflammatory cytokines that circulate through the body. And these are molecules that circulate around the bloodstream and eventually can make their way to the spinal fluid and really affect how the brain is functioning. So there's certain signaling molecules that could be acting as neuromodulators, we think, on the brain that are triggered by something happening in the nerves and sinuses. Of course, the $64 question is, if you do a FES, in other words, one of these sinus operations, or you treat people with nasal steroids, does the brain fog go away? It does. That actually has been shown in multiple studies of quality of life of patients that have been treated either with medical therapy, as you pointed out, steroids, as well as functional endoscopic sinus surgery. Doing these interventions, we can see that their cognitive function actually improves. Their reaction time actually improves. And is there any crossover with long COVID here, given that some people have had serious damage to their ability to smell and taste? Either they lose it completely or they get crossover, which is really unpleasant tastes and smells. And there is some documented inflammation in the brain from the top of the nose. Is there any crossover here? You know, it's a great question. It's a topic of a lot of research currently. The olfactory system is unique in the sense that it's the only cranial nerve that has a direct communication with the outside world. That could be a mechanism by which any virus or anything can get to the brain. However, our most current and up-to-date understanding of COVID-related smell loss is that it actually does not affect the nervous system in the nodes. It tends to affect the adjacent or supportive structures and cells in the nose and causes really localized swelling, which causes a blockage of odors getting to the brain. And so I don't think that the COVID-related smell-off issues could be related to what we're seeing here in our study, but certainly patients that I see that have called long haulers of COVID do tend to describe some similar symptoms of brain fog and fatigue. And I'm not entirely sure if it's coming from the nose, the mechanism that we understand, but it could be in the same vein as the other inflammatory conditions that have cognitive symptomatology as well. And so, as we know, COVID ultimately affects the entire body and and those effects could be long-term, irrespective of nose and brain connection. Aria, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Dr. Aria Jafari is in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Washington, Seattle. Now, it's one of those injuries that turns your stomach to think about, open globe injuries. We're basically talking about an eyeball puncture or rupture. It's one of the leading causes of single eye blindness in Australia. But until now, we haven't actually had a good idea of just how much it costs the country. But a group of Australian researchers has been taking a closer look at this and at, who's at, and at who is most at risk. One of these researchers is Chameen Sarawa Wickrama. Welcome, Chameen. Thank you, Tegan. No one starts their day planning for an open globe injury. So who are the groups that are most at risk? Um, So we found that there were three groups of people who were most at risk. And it's quite interesting because it actually happens to the younger group, um, which are the working class young men, typically 16 to 30. The middle age group, which are the 40 to 50 year olds, and it's more men than females. And a third group, which is elderly patients, typically females, in the 85 to 90 age group. Right. So what is it about each of these three groups that makes them high risk? Assume, I'm assuming, at least with the younger group, we're talking about work site injuries? 
That's correct. So the bulk of the worksite injuries occurred to younger men in that younger age group. And what was interesting with our results was close to 90% weren't wearing appropriate eye protection. And this is mandated, but it just wasn't being worn at the time, had an injury that was obviously unexpected and had quite a severe injury from that. With the middle age group, it tends to be people primarily at home. And we think it's actually do-it-yourself projects where people are using equipment, tools, but not wearing appropriate safety equipment. And the third group was slightly different. It was older females and the primary mechanism was falls. Now, this group was much worse because the mechanism of injury isn't something going in the eye. It's the eye actually rupturing. So it's a much more severe injury and much more devastating injury. Right. So this eye rupturing, it's sort of, I'm assuming it's quite a severe fall and the force of that is what's ruptured the eye? That's correct. And also in this age group, just because patients are older, um, reflexes aren't as good, strength isn't there. So when they do fall, they can't really brace themselves. So they're much more likely to impact the head and the face and therefore the eye as well. That sounds really awful. And am I right in thinking that what could be contributing to this really uh, traumatic eye injury is perhaps a pre-existing low vision? Well, in many cases, that's the case. Um, Falls prevention is quite a big area and it's something that in preventative medicine we've been working a lot towards. There are many aspects of it and obviously um, mobility balance is a key component here. But certainly vision is a big component. And the thing about vision is that often with certain conditions like, for example, cataract, the rate of declines very slow. So people don't appreciate that their vision's actually gotten worse. It's just the same as yesterday, which is the same as the day before, but it's much worse than it was five years ago. So that's the process that we were picking up, that sometimes the fall happened because of visual issues, but the patient didn't appreciate how bad their vision truly was. Right, and then what's the recovery like for an older person with one of these open globe injuries? Unfortunately, it's a very slow, long process and often it's fraught with complications. So in terms of the eye itself, the injury is very, very bad. And so visual recovery is not very good. We find that the vision remains quite poor, but it actually has more deleterious effects for the entire patient and the person as a whole. There's been previous studies that show when one, when a typically an elderly patient has decreased vision in one eye, they're at much more risk of falling. And the falls risk, and this was published in 2013 from the Blue Mountains Eye Study, um, was five times higher within a five-year period. We also know with more times people fall, the more likely they are to get a fracture. The more likely they are to get a fracture, the less their recovery, the less that they can um, move, exercise, so their frailty increases. And there's a clear association between poor vision and sudden vision loss in one eye, resulting in worsening morbidity and mortality. Right. And is it also possible that sometimes people will lose sight in the other eye, this uh, phenomenon called sympathetic ophthalmia? Yes. So that's a possibility. It's exceedingly rare, thankfully. Um, But certainly if you lose vision in one eye, especially from a severe trauma or even you know, much more rarely surgery, it is a possibility where the immune system attacks itself and then goes to the other eye. But 
to reassure everyone that is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. And the good news is nowadays we do have some treatments for it that can actually stop it before it starts taking vision away. Right. And so the the study that you've published recently, though, has been about trying to quantify just how much uh, open globe injuries cost Australia. How do you even start to put a dollar figure on that? It's a really difficult process. And I was very fortunate to have an excellent student, Brendan Lee, who actually collected a lot of the data. The real challenge with this is that we don't have good data available. So we get data from sources like WorkSafe Australia and um, that kind of thing where we can quantify what's happening to an individual person. But the reality is there's no way of telling how the effect ripples on to the wards, the family and the individual later on in life. So, for example, if someone has a massive injury and they need to be driven, the person who drives them takes a day off work because they're using their carer's leave. But that's not recorded linked to the trauma. So there's no way of telling that. And if someone has to change their job, so say they're a forklift driver, they have an injury, they can't go back to work. They have a different job that may be less than what they were doing before. They're less satisfied with it. We have no way of measuring the psychological trauma, the psychological stress associated with that. So what we can give is a rough idea of how it's affecting an individual, but we have no way of quantifying it to its true extent in the wider community. Mm. Chameen, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. My pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Chameen Samara-Wikrama is an eye surgeon and vision scientist at Westmead Hospital and the Westmead Institute for Medical Research. Thanks, Tegan. I've stopped wincing. Some people test positive for the COVID virus for weeks on end. That's positive on what's called the PCR nose swab, which detects the RNA, the genetic material of the virus. A proportion of these people have compromised immune systems from cancer treatment or immune suppression to stop organ rejection from a transplant. But many have normal immune systems and don't seem to be excreting infectious versions of the virus. A research group in Boston may have found the answer. The RNA RNA from the virus may have done a reverse park into the DNA of the cells in the respiratory tract. Professor Rudolf Janich of the Whitehead Institute at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology led the team, which has high-level experience with another virus that does something similar, HIV. When you get infected with this virus, you get very fast high titers of virus in your system, but that falls after a week or 10 days, it goes down and then becomes undetectable. But nevertheless, many people remain PCR positive for a long, long time after there's no infectious virus anymore detected. Which creates all sorts of issues in terms of getting back into the community and isolation and all that sort of thing. How have you gone about trying to solve that conundrum? One potential explanation was that some of this can get integrated by a retrointegration into the genome, becomes a stable part of the DNA of the infected cell. I mean, this is an RNA virus, but what you're saying is the message comes into the cell, and what the cell normally does is a forward messaging from RNA into the cell to produce the spike protein or the virus or whatever else. But for some reason, it reverses back into what's called the nucleus which is where the genome resides and somehow gets integrated back into the genome. You're totally right. So the virus really replicates only in the cytoplasm. That's the soup of the cell. But there's a process very well established, which the retroviruses like HIV use in their normal life cycle. This involves what's called a reverse transcription. 
where RNA is copied into a DNA copy. And this mechanism, apparently, and we've shown that, operates here. So some of the coronavirus RNA gets reverse transcribed in DNA, and the DNA can get into the nucleus and then integrate into the genome. It becomes a stable part of the genetic makeup of the cell. Then why are you PCR positive? Because, right. I mean, right. is the cell now producing fragments of the virus from that DNA in the cell? So the DNA, just again to explain the biology, the DNA connects with a substance called mRNA, and the mRNA takes the message into the cell. Are you saying now the DNA in the cell is telling the cell to produce bits of the virus? Well, yes, exactly what you're saying is correct. So once integrates, then we have shown that these integrated copies can be now produced bits and pieces of the virus, and those bits and pieces could be detected by PCR. Is there any sense of all the people who have prolonged positive PCRs that this is actually the explanation? No, I think it's one explanation. So we can say in some patients this occurs. So does that mean the coronavirus is a retrovirus? No, not at all. So a retrovirus has an obligatory step they have to integrate and then produce the progeny virus on the integrated copies. That's a normal life cycle of a retrovirus like HIV. Coronavirus does not do this. So in other words, for HIV to survive and replicate, it's not like the coronavirus. It actually not has to do the step we've been talking about first, right. and then right. it replicates. Whereas the coronavirus, this is like an accident. Exactly. I think you, that you can say. Now, the obvious thing that comes to mind here is the manufacturers of the mRNA vaccines have been very careful to say that the mRNA stays in the cytoplasm, the soup of the cell, tells the ribosomes, which are these little factories which produce the spike protein, and then it all disappears. So you get the mRNA going in, sending the message to produce the spike protein, that leaves the cell and you get an immune response. Could it be that the mRNA also gets integrated into the DNA? We have no evidence whatsoever for this. So let me give you my read on this. I think it's very unlikely, although we cannot exclude it. But no, let's assume it did occur. What would be the consequence? The consequence might be sort of beneficial because now if this integrates and now expresses the spike protein, it would alert the immune system to the antigen you want to be alerted to. It would last longer. So I think that's maybe the positive scenario if that occurs, which I don't believe it does. HIV is what's called an oncogenic virus. It can cause cancer, rare forms of cancer, but it can cause cancer, which is partly thought to be because of its retroviral activity. In other words, it gets into the DNA of the cell. So my two questions here are, the first one is, does the RNA from the coronavirus, when it gets reversed into DNA, go into exactly mm -hmm. the same part of the genome? And is there anything around that part of the genome which would suggest it could influence a gene related to cancer, for example? So first of all, we don't know whether there's any preference for integration. We just don't know. It's very difficult to study this. But there's a huge difference between a retrovirus integrating and this piece of RNA integrating. If the retrovirus integrates, it has all the machinery to express itself, whereas this piece of RNA doesn't have that. To my opinion, it's very unlikely it makes a mutation which you see in cancer caused by retroviruses. Very unlikely. And a final question, which is a practical one for public health authorities, is, is there a test 
or a way of detecting whether when somebody's PCR positive for a prolonged period, that this is the issue and you can relax about it and not isolate and not worry that you might be infectious? I would answer the following way. If you're PCR negative, you exclude having been infected, right? So that's a really good thing. If you're PCR positive, I think there are two possibilities. You either have this piece of RNA, which gives you positivity, but there's no, no danger of infection. So I think the more relevant test would be to look at infectious virus, for example, by these antigen tests. If your antigen test positive, you know you have infectious virus. This is a very rapid, very cheap test, but it's not terribly sensitive. PCR is much more sensitive. So I think I would argue for the health system, the antigen test might be very, very relevant and important because that tests directly what you want to test for. Professor Yenich, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for talking with me. Professor Rudolf Yenich, who's at the Whitehead Institute at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Interesting stuff there, Tegan, isn't it? So fascinating and interesting to think that SARS coronavirus 2 might become one of the thousands and probably millions of viruses that have contributed to the human genome over our history. Yeah, you know, in terms of junk DNA as well. And uh, that antigen testing is quite important because it could have a relationship to how we control our borders in the future. So interesting. Absolutely. I could talk about this all day, but we won't because we're going to answer some listener questions now. And of course, if you, my darling listener, want to ask us a question, you can send it into healthreport at abc.net.au. But uh, Norman, let's start with this one from Thomas. Thomas says, several years ago, there was some mention of using Irukandji jellyfish venom in the treatment of arthritis. Any updates? Thomas has managed to trash uh, a knee, hip and elbow <laughs> joints, uh, all osteoarthritic, so is desperate to hear of some promising treatments on the horizon. So the whole idea of this is counter-irritation in the joint. And there is evidence for counter-irritation working. So there's two kinds of counter-irritation. I'll get bombs, letter bombs through the mail for about saying this. But in fact, acupuncture is a form of counter-irritation. They've shown that with randomized trials of acupuncture, acupuncture does actually relieve pain not necessarily on the meridians. Sham acupuncture involves putting needles in, but not necessarily on the meridians. And you get a pain relief. So you get a pain relief from both. It's, so it's better than nothing, but it, there's no difference in terms of technique. So that's counter-irritation, which is a nervous thing. But then there's chemical irritation, which may well be that, you know, from a sting or something like that near the joint, then you could imagine that to be the case. If you've got a jellyfish sting in another part of the body, then it's more like acupuncture. People have studied, um, you know, there's been, well, I should say there's really a fad for a while of stem cells for joint for osteoarthritis. And in the knee joint, it seemed to actually have an effect. But then they discovered that, in fact, it was no different from placebo. That If you injected something like saline into the joint, you got a similar effect. And what they find also is that there probably is a significant effect from these spun down plasma. You take blood off, spin down the plasma, and then inject that into the joint. And that gives you an irritation in the joint, which seems to help, at least for a while, the inflammation of osteoarthritis. How long it lasts you know, depends on who you talk to, but there does seem to be a real effect of that. And then there are, first of all, the, the, you know, the basic stuff here is preventing injury when you're growing up, having proper coaching during netball, soccer and other, which is match specific and can prevent things like knee injury, shoulder injuries and else other things that, that would save a huge amount of osteoarthritis. And then there's weight loss. 
Obesity does increase the risk of osteoarthritis, particularly in the hands and elsewhere. And then there's strengthening and keeping the muscles strong around the joint that's got a lot of pain, and that's hard to do. So taking some paracetamol before exercise is important. And then there are new drugs available or coming on the market for osteoarthritis, which treats the actual condition, because it's not just wear and tear. There is an inflammatory component here. So you've now sucked my brain dry on osteoarthritis, <laughs> Thomas. So what you're saying is it's not necessarily the Irukandji jellyfish specifically. It no. might be just the fact that you're sticking something into that joint. Yeah, something's there that's irritating or it's counter irritation somewhere else in the body. You're distracting the pain pathways in your spine from the pain in the, in the joint itself. Well, now that your brain is dry of osteoarthritis information, Norman, Genevieve has a question to you about another thing that people sometimes find when they get older, grey hair. Uh, Genevieve says she's in her mid-30s. She's been mostly grey for a few years now. She's not concerned, but her mother and friends are commenting on it. She knows genetics can play a part, but both her parents at her age didn't really have visibly grey hair at the time. So what other factors could be at play here? Um, there are a lot of causes of premature greyness. Now, people t- tend to start getting grey at round about their mid-30s. It's depressing, I know, but you, it's around about the age you start to get grey hairs. Premature greyness tends to be defined as under 20, as less than 20. But I think anybody who's getting grey in their 20s is considered largely uh, premature. There is a genetic component, but there are lots of other causes as well. Some drugs, particularly chemotherapy drugs, can cause it. Oxidative stress cancer, this is free radicals, which is actually a cause of ageing as well. Now, oxidative stress can be increased by psychological stress. So chronic stress can be related to going grey early. It used to be thought to be a myth, but it probably isn't. Poor diet, chronic diseases all increase oxidative stress, as can smoking. Um, autoimmune diseases can affect the hair roots and the ability of the hair to continue to be dyed, if you like, naturally. Vitamin B12 deficiency, thyroid disease, all those things can cause premature greyness. And some nutritional deficiencies which can be are, are reversible. So in other words, you can get your hair colour back with some nutritional deficiencies. So if you're getting grey in your 20s, um, it's probably up to the GP to just do a general check of you to make sure you don't have one of those chronic conditions. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It could just be genetics. Genevieve, I'm sure you're looking very mature and you know, and great in your greyness. I actually love a bit of grey hair, I, even on myself. It makes me feel wise. Yeah, I prefer the salt and pepper look. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Colin's got a question about vaccinations and not just COVID vaccinations, although that's part of it. A year ago, Colin had the flu vax and five days later developed shingles and within a few months had also developed a frozen shoulder. And Colin's asking, could one or both have been triggered by the vaccine? Could his immune system be compromised by that vaccine? And he's wondering what that means for whether or not he should get AstraZeneca or Pfizer. So let's just talk about shingles, which is a reactivation of chickenpox. Um, There is a shingles vaccine, so we don't know how old Colin is. There is a shingles vaccine, which I think is free over the age of 70. I I think think that's right. 65. 65 or 70. You can get it earlier than that um, if you want to pay for it, and it is quite effective. Probably a coincidence after the flu vaccination, but there is some evidence that shingles can come out when you're a bit run down, when you've got another infection or something else going on. So it's possible that it came out after the flu. I don't think you can blame the frozen shoulder on the flu vaccine, and it won't have anything to do with whether or not you should get the Astra or Pfizer vaccine. Go ahead and get the one that you are age-appropriate for. 
I'm not sure if it's free or not, but I just checked the immunisation handbook and adults aged over 60 are recommended to receive the shingles vaccine. And if you're aged between 50 and 59, you're not routinely recommended to get it, but you can get it if you want to reduce your risk. It's not a great problem to get and you can get uh, really quite painful lesions and um, the, the vaccine can prevent that. And one last question, Norman, from Judith. Uh, Judith's been given a bottle of Sporbiotic by a friend because she has irritable bowel syndrome. Is it helpful or just a way of enriching the manufacturer? And is it potentially harmful? So essentially what you're talking about is do probiotics help irritable bowel syndrome? And while people think the microbiome does have an influence here, nobody is too sure, but probably it does. Trials of probiotics have been relatively unsuccessful with irritable bowel syndrome. That doesn't mean it's not in the microbiome. And what seems to be better is a prebiotic approach where you change your macro diet in the hope of settling that down. So a Mediterranean pattern of, of eating is the sort of thing that you might find beneficial for irritable bowel syndrome, eliminating maybe specific foods that you find upset you. But probiotics itself, maybe one day they'll find specific probiotics that will help. Unlikely that a probiotic will do you any harm, so it might be worth trying. But yeah, it may well enrich the manufacturer at your expense, but you know, what the heck, maybe try it if you've been given it a present. Some people recommend a low FODMAP diet for irritable bowel syndrome. And if you're interested in learning more about that, we actually covered it in the question and answer section back on the 22nd of March if you want to scroll back through your podcast feed. Yep. Hard work, but sometimes people get a benefit. Thanks for reminding me, Tegan. You should be answering the questions, not me. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for tonight. That email again, of course, is healthreport at abc.net.au. If you've got a question, we'll catch you next week. Yep. See you then. <laughs> 